0: I think or what I hope COVID has done is to help reorient kind of all the conversations around health in our country including those for health equity and to really kind of well what do we need to ensure you know at a, at a population level what do we need to do to ensure that of health equity isn't just kind of off to the side that isn't just sort of a nice to have or isn't just something that some people in some places should be concerned about but ultimately has to be kind of central to the project of ensuring that we as a country and ultimately we as a globe are are healthy and are and are resilient
1: Welcome to the Inon Health podcast. I'm your host Kapama Yalpala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Inon Health. In this final episode of season one of our podcast, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea is the vice chair of the Clinton Foundation, working as a part of the foundation's leadership and alongside its partners to create economic opportunity, improve public health, and inspire civic engagement and service for tens of millions of people across the United States and around the world. She also serves on the boards of the Clinton Health Access Initiative and the Alliance for a Healthier Generation. Chelsea recently launched a podcast called In Fact, where she sits down with experts, activists, and others to discuss critical public health issues, I highly recommend this podcast. Chelsea holds a Bachelor of Arts from Stanford, a Master of Public Health from Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health, and both a Master of Philosophy and a Doctorate in International Relations from Oxford University. Her dissertation at Oxford examined the first decade of the Global Fund to Fight HIV AIDS, TB, and Malaria. She has served on numerous Lancet commissions, including the Commission on Vaccine Refusal, Acceptance and Demand in the U.S. and the NCDI Poverty Commission. Chelsea teaches at Columbia University's Millman School of Public Health and has authored several books for young readers, including many New York Times bestsellers. She lives with her husband, Mark, their children, Charlotte, Aiden and Jasper, and dog Soren in New York City. As a global health practitioner and young professional, I was one of the early employees of the Clinton Health Access Initiative, also known as CHAI. This was a tremendous opportunity for me at the beginning of my career to work on the biggest global public health issue at that time, HIV AIDS. While a public health student at Yale and thereafter, I lived and worked in several African and Caribbean countries for CHAI, and those experiences were foundational to the work I do today. I had the chance to witness and participate in building of national HIV AIDS programs, as well as the growth of CHAI through its innovative, impactful, and global model. It was only later in my career that I crossed paths with Chelsea through our mutual work on COVID vaccine equity challenges here in the US. I had the opportunity to observe Chelsea's depth of expertise and insight on public health issues, as well as how she uses her national and global platforms To support equitable, science-based public health in action. I was impressed and have enjoyed the opportunity to collaborate with her and other colleagues we work with on important health equity challenges. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Season two will be coming soon with many exciting guests. Please subscribe so that you're alerted as soon as we release those episodes. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Chelsea. I've really um, had the great pleasure of getting to know you. And for me, it's been full circle coming from Chai as one of the early employees and then later in life getting to connect with you um, through our mutual work on COVAX equity here in the U.S. So thank you for joining
0: us today. Yeah, no, thanks so much, KP. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I always enjoy our conversations and I'm looking forward to you know, uh, focusing in on whatever would be kind of helpful to talk about today that you think your audience would find hopefully not only, you know, engaging, um, but hopefully, maybe enraging at times, and, right. <laughs> you know, empowering and uh, inspiring. And so you're know, really happy to take the conversation in kind of whatever direction, you know, you think best.
1: That's great. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea. I've been really keen to talk to you about First, our U.S. context of health equity through the lens of COVID and the pandemic and then other needs. But I really also want to bring in your global expertise. So, But just to kick us off, I mean, as we've talked about before, I and mean, with this COVID-19 pandemic and the, the horrific disparities in morbidity and mortality for, you know, low-income populations, people of color, generally vulnerable populations, like everyone's talking about health equity. Now we know as public health practitioners, this is nothing new. This is health disparities and the challenges around them have been around, unfortunately, for a long time. Um, but now that we have this kind of momentum around the topic, I would love to start with definitions. Cause I think in our country, not everyone maybe is aligned on what they mean by health equity. So I'm really curious how you see health equity and its definition in our US context.
0: Okay, oh, P, what a what a good and and hard question. You know. The CDC effectively defines health equity as kind of anything and everything (laughs) needed to ensure that everyone is able to kind of live up to their health potential. And then, you know, I'm sure there are like dozens of bullet points kind of underneath that kind of overarching frame of kind of what does that mean to ensure that everyone has kind of whatever we need and yet i do think before covid so often health equity conversations were rooted in kind of well what do individuals need like well what what do what do individuals need to be able to be health healthy to be able to lead you know long thriving productive hopefully happy lives mm-hmm. and yet i think what or what i hope covid has done is to help reorient kind of all the conversations around health in our country including those for health equity and to really kind of well what do we need to ensure you know at a, at a population level you know what do we need to do to ensure that kind of health equity isn't just kind of off to the side, right. you know, that isn't just sort of a nice to have, or isn't just something that some people in some places should be concerned about, but ultimately has to be kind of central to the project of ensuring that, you know, we as a country and ultimately you know, we as a globe, you know, are are healthy and are, and are resilient, you know, to the inevitable um, kind of next time or other kind of challenges uh, that we know will come. Um, as, as COVID certainly has. So, you know, I, th- I think that the, the conversation before COVID is certainly a really important one. You know, how do we ensure that every person has what you know, they need? But I do hope that now post COVID, we have more of a real um, population lens that is know, really focused on on health equity and health justice across kind of not only kind of uh, remediating, correcting, you know, overcoming all of the um, racial, ethnic, religious, gender, socioeconomic, geographic, you know, and on and on ways that um, kind of inequity had often kind of fragmented and fractured into into people's lives. but I hope really kind of centers the equity work as real kind of population level work in which mm-hmm. we all have to participate. We all have to feel ownership. and ultimately, we are all are held accountable. Um And I know that was a lot of like words. but the second thing I would say, too, is I do think you know when we talk about determinants of health, so often, KP, the conversation was around, well, does someone have insurance or does someone have a pre-existing relationship with a primary health healthcare doctor? You exactly. know. Exactly. Did someone kind of go to the doctor growing up as a child so that they actually know why it's important to keep going to the doctor as an adult? You know, how far does someone live from a clinic or a full stack hospital? All of that is really important and clearly um, you know, are. Are important indicators of how um, you know how healthy and how resilient someone's health is, but I think there's also a lot of stuff in this country and around the world that often you know because it was uh, categorized as sort of social determinants of health, sort of felt less than or more um, you know less proximate to health, although actually you know has huge implications for someone's health, like you know. Do women have access to, um, not only reproductive health services, but also like non-judgmental spaces where they can just even talk about like sex in our bodies. Often those are at like schools or in religious communities or, or unfortunately, like often those places just don't exist or what's the, is it legal for kids to get married in a state, which it still is in 44 states in our country, you know, how, um, How much like particulate matter and pollution is there in the air around your home or where your parents work or where you spend time and play outside as a kid? Like all these things, whether from a kind of cultural perspective or a legal perspective or an environmental perspective, you know, we're, we're classified under like social determinants of health. But I think we need to find better language to talk about kind of all of these things are actually Part of our health, like they're not just social determinants of health. They're not distal to our health. They really affect our health, and they don't just affect like my health or your health. They affect families' health sometimes over generations. They affect communities' health sometimes over generations. They then affect like whole countries' health sometimes over generations. And I just think we really need to recenter and expand the definition, and then therefore like the the implications for action, whether it's a policy level a research level an activist level, like for what, what equity really means and what we really understand it to mean.
1: Right. And I hear you're talking a lot about basically everyone's wellness context, right? Because there's so many different inputs, as you're saying, around how people can achieve wellness. And so that's, I mean, maybe the conversation has been a bit narrow is what I'm hearing you say as well. When we talk about health equity in terms of you know, and even some of the language around social determinants of health, but really looking at that holistic context of someone's life and how that facilitates wellness for them or doesn't. Right.
0: And how your wellness affects me.
1: Exactly. So then becomes framed through the community lens and less so through just that purely individualistic lens.
0: Yes. And I think, too, you know, as you and I were talking before we began our recording, you know, I'm, I'm here in New York City um, where, you know, as we sit Talking in late September, you know we are in the midst of multiple fights over uh, vaccine mandates uh, for healthcare workers, for teachers, for kind of other government employees, police officers, firefighters, and others. We're over a real fight over kind of the ongoing humanitarian crisis um, that isn't just occurring yet, but really is. Uh, Rikers, which is our large uh, city jail here in New York City. and I just wish that everyone understood that even if you're not a parent, you should care about kind of whether or not you know teachers and professional staff, bus drivers who are around our city's children are vaccinated or not. Whether or not you know someone, you have someone that you love who is or has been incarcerated, you know, at Rikers, like you should care about what's happening there. Not only because hopefully you're a good person, but because if we just look over the last like 18 plus months of the epidemic, you know, prisons and jails have been the sources of a, a majority of our like very large scale, um, outbreaks across this country. And so like what happens there hopefully should matter to you again, because hopefully like that matters to you on a moral level. It also should matter to you on just a public health, kind of a health equity and interconnectedness of our shared kind of health context perspective. And yet I worry for so many people, those just still aren't true. Right.
1: No. And, and so before we kind of really dig into this COVID issue more deeply, I'm curious about because a lot of what I'm, I'm hearing, too, and it's just what we've talked about before is, you know, public health is really at the crux of it about how we think about community health, which then is how we think about community. And right in our country, we know that it's so fraught with division and just such a vo- we're in such a volatile state that I feel like for those of us that trained in public health, like I don't think we've ever really experienced this dynamic in public health yet that I can think about where there's so much tension around this concept of community and we feel divided on so many topics and uh, you really see like the public health issue all of a sudden being a central kind of pressure point around other societal challenges we have in this country. And I mean, let me ask you this, like, what do you see that gives you hope or that can help us unlock some of this divisiveness around this public health issue, or what do you see this working? I mean, I know we're gonna dig into some of the, this hard and kind of not so nice stuff to d- discuss because it's, it's really politically charged and it's like we can't, you know, it's like so many people just aren't even willing to listen to each other. But I think there's something here fundamental about our society and our society's values that we're all kind of on the pulse of, but public health really hinges on it. So how do you see that?
0: Well, you know, KB, I think there's a few questions. I mean, you asked about kind of, you know, optimism, but you also effectively asked, like, you know, have have we been here before? And then if right. we have, like, how did we get out of it? So, you know, I, I would say certainly we've had, you know, kind of people who didn't believe in or trust vaccines and vaccinations for longer than we've had a country. You know, I think now George Washington is hopefully at least a little better known for variolating or kind of the you know effectively you know inoculating the Continental Army against smallpox and you know I think now a lot of people are, are more aware than they were you know certainly a couple of years ago um, that on on multiple occasions over you know now more than a century um, various state courts and the US Supreme Court have upheld the right of um, of of various entities to have vaccine mandates, of of school districts to have vaccine mandates, of kind of local governments to have vaccine mandates, you know, for their kind of public buildings or, or employment, you know, for private sector companies to have vaccine mandates, um, and so certainly, you know, hopefully that gives us some hope that while. There have always been people who have um, opposed public health measures. There have always been people, especially who have felt quite vehement against kind of vaccines and vaccinations. Um, There have always been a majority of people who you know have have shown up to be vaccinated, have taken their children to be vaccinated, have supported vaccine mandates, and that the um, that our court system has also. Um, supported uh, and, and upheld uh, the legality of, of vaccine mandates, but you know I do think you know I think a, a, a lot as I know so many people have, including people who were you know alive and doing the work, kind of in the in the eighties at the beginning of, and then um, kind of throughout the, the first decade of the HIV/AIDS crisis in our country, where um, you know there there were there was a lot of. Homophobia and racism and bigotry uh, and and stigma, not only around kind of the virus, but around kind of who were HIV positive. How you know there's a lot of like this was their fault, like they did this to themselves, they deserved it. Like mm-hmm. just things that are so antithetical to kind of good public health, or again, hopefully just like morality, um, and. Yet, at least, you know, not that I have read about or when I've talked to people who were kind of very much on the front lines and there wasn't the sense of, well, it's it's not happening. Right. It's like all a hoax. Like the doctors don't know what they're talking about. Like the activists don't know what they're talking about. Like ARVs are antiretrovirals are like made up. Like, here's some snake oil, like, right. drink this instead. Like, there wasn't the same effort that there is today to totally discredit, um, sometimes to violently discredit science and scientists. Mm-hmm. So when I think about what is really new, it's not like the anti-vaccine movement. It's not the kind of dismissal of, of kind of f- fact But it is the the degree to which that's happening, the wholesale embrace of that by a large chunk of one of our major political parties here in the United States that have politicized um, science, the scientific kind of effort, research, and then therefore like the researchers, the epidemiologists, the virologists, the doctors, the nurses, the kind of public health professionals you know, in local, county, state health departments, you know, at the CDC, at the FDA. And so that I do find very concerning um, because while, yes, like we've had some antecedents to this and, and yes, like there has, we've had, you know, many painful examples throughout American history of um, epidemics being weaponized by, you know, white supremacists and white nationalists. Um, we haven't had the de- the current degree of science denial discrediting of scientists, that alighting with kind of the language of of white supremacy, um, that then being articulated like every night on Fox News, that then being echoed across, you know, many, many thousands of accounts on social media then absorbed by many millions of people every day. And so what gives me optimism, I guess, is that more people are aware of this phenomenon. Mm, okay. More people are trying to figure out how to um, help, in some ways, inoculate people from kind of the mis- and disinformation. Mm-hmm. There are very real efforts now to kind of reestablish and and make more robust trust between you know, people across our country and their local pediatricians, their local family medicine doctors, their local primary care doctors, their local, public, and, you know, state, like, health authorities. And so while I find um, what we're living through quite uh, worrying, to put it mildly, Mm. you know, I do find optimism that people are not passive to it, that people, you know, that there are a lot of people who are like, well, this is not a healthy place to be. This is not good for our shared public health today. This is going to be devastating for our future if we don't try to really – prevent the spread of mis- and disinformation, if we don't try to disempower bad actors who are often looking to profit off of the mis- and disinformation, if we don't really try to help um, reinstitute like scientific literacy and education like back into our public school system um, so that we're raising up citizens who hopefully know how to then you know, absorb different types of information and make good decisions for themselves and their families, whether that's on kind of wearing a mask, if there right. is a, you know, airborne virus circulating or getting a vaccine to help protect you and your kids, or whether that's actually making, you know, very different choices about how to consume and use energy, and then hopefully to vote for candidates who are kind of at least literate in, in the science and have a real commitment to public health in which kind of equity is implied because you can't have public health without equity. Without equity, and, exactly. And yeah. So much else. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So tell me this, because I think you've helped draw out a really important theme about this basically deep backlash against science. Um what can scientists do better to help get people on board? I think people hear so much conflicting information now, even in the news about, you know, the vaccines and about there's just so much conflicting data out there. The the average citizen, there is probably some sense of like, what do I trust? What do I believe? What's real? So, and I think on the, on the one hand, maybe there's something that scientists can do or the field of science better and maybe how it communicates or engages citizens to help get people on board. But what do you think? What can we do there?
0: Well, you know, I I certainly think, and, you know, we have many people in, you know, many different kind of disciplines and professions you know, who have been on the front lines of COVID either as as researchers, you know, as as doctors and nurses, you know, as, as uh, public health professionals, often working kind of for local or state government, you know, many of whom have said you know they wish that they had taken or had had even had the opportunity to take um you know effective you know, communication strategies You know in, in public health, you know, in a, in a pandemic context and in just a general kind of public health context. Um, I do think, though, we can't put the burden on individuals um, to do this work. I do think this is a larger challenge with the bias that for a long time has prevailed in mainstream media um, to always present both sides of an argument um, as if both sides of an argument are... Equally valid, um, you know. So there's this like adage in, um, you know, that I think often is is taught in journalism school that, you know, remember to look out the window, right? If you have one person saying it's raining and one person saying it's not raining, like don't forego your own critical thinking and observational abilities to look out the window and be like, oh, it's raining. Right. So why is someone lying about the fact that it's like not raining? Like I should not, therefore, then treat these two things equally. But I think, unfortunately, that's not how a lot of the media operates. So you'll have, you know, know, not only a mountain, it feels like, you know, a universe of evidence about the effectiveness and the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines. And then you'll have someone say, well, you know, like I heard from a friend of a friend of a friend that, like, they got sick afterwards. And so you know then you have the media run headlines like well this is was an actual headline on bloomberg like you know while the data all may be saying one thing like anecdotes like say something else to us and you're like well wait what no right. but then you say here's what the data says to help people contextualize the anecdotes that they're hearing uh, in the context of all the data not as if like Oh these like three stories are the same as like you know 3 billion plus doses of vaccine at the time that had been given right so i i think that we we can't put the burden on individual like doctors scientists public health professionals when i think actually the burden to help solve this really has to be on on traditional media, Um, not both sides, like anything in public health where we have real evidence. And also on the social media platforms. I mean, this morning, um, you know, Google, YouTube announced that they were going to start really taking down the um, biggest um, accounts, hopefully ultimately all the accounts that traffic in anti-vaccine information. So. Not only taking down individual videos, but effectively, like, deplatforming
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, the people who are, are pushing and promoting um, anti-vaccine information. And importantly, not only about the COVID-19 vaccines, but about vaccines and vaccinations broadly. Um, you know, right. although we've also seen, like, Facebook commit to the same, and they have a rather abysmal track record on even living up to their own policies and standards. So I think that, um, yes, of course we have to do all we can to support and protect, um, and better empower with effective tools, you know, doctors, scientists, public health professionals who are on the front lines, talking to the media and just talking to people in their like day to day lives and in mm-hmm. the course of their jobs. But we also have to put pressure, um, on, on the gatekeepers of, of information for most people um, to ensure that um, lies are not being given the same standing as truth, that anti science efforts are not being kind of positioned as being equivalent to what we have learned kind of through mm-hmm. the course of, of rigorous science and research, that a blog post isn't treated the same as like a peer reviewed publication and also that the social media platforms where we know a lot of people, especially young people, get their information, you know, hopefully start to be better corporate actors. And if not, I do think that we need regulation um, to ultimately make them responsible and then hold them accountable um, for trafficking, amplifying and ultimately candidly profiting through the ads they sell off of uh, content that is really destructive to individuals' health, but also to our shared public health.
1: To our shared public health. Okay. Thank you so much for that. I want to switch gears. You've been really vocal about the importance of U.S. leadership in global COVID-19 vaccine access. Um, Coming off the U.N. General Assembly and the White House 2021 Global COVID-19 Vaccine Summit, how do you see the U.S. is doing now? I mean, there's some big commitments that have been made from the U.S. government. Um, to support the global vaccine effort. But where are we in terms of our leadership role in the U.S.? What do you think we need to do better?
0: So certainly, I think uh, the um, the vaccine donations that we've already made, the more than 100 million doses that we've already donated, that we've committed by mid-2022 to donate 1.1 billion doses, um, is is important, absolutely important. Um, and I I would hope would be um, kind of matched by other other donor countries who have uh, resources to um, be able to similarly donate, you know tens of millions or hundreds of millions of of doses. And I say that because while yes, I have been quite critical of the Biden administration and I'll get to that in a moment. I do think it's important to note that um, we have made, uh, by far and away the largest um, kind of commitment to donate um, of, of any country, although certainly you know China, the European Union, um, the UK, Australia, and others have have made commitments. Ours is the largest, but I would I would hope other countries would um, similarly expand on their commitments right. We certainly saw President Biden do um, at the summit uh, that you mentioned around the UN General Assembly, um, which happened you know just recently all that being said, I don't think that we can donate our way out of this crisis, especially um, when we look at um, the ongoing conversation around boosters, um, not only here in the U.S., but across the world. Um, And while, you know, I know that many people in the administration like to say, look, we can both like talk about boosters and we can, you know, talk about um, kind of global vaccination efforts and, like, one doesn't preclude the other, like, it is a zero-sum game. Like, yes, like, we are producing hundreds of millions um, of mRNA vaccines alone, you know, every month. Um, but if we really are going to vaccinate the world effectively, efficiently, urgently, we need to be producing billions of doses every month. Right, um, And we know... That that is possible, Um, but we also know um, that there are some very clear obstacles. You know there yes you know are the obstacles around patent protections, Um, and so President Biden thankfully has supported you know a a waiver um, around the COVID nineteen vaccine patents at the WTO. Uh, We need Germany um, and. The EU holistically, we need Switzerland, the UK. I mean, we need other countries uh, to match his commitment, which they have not done yet. Okay. But we know that even if there's a waiver on the patents, there's also that basically gives you the permission to make the vaccines. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of technical know-how um, that manufacturers around the world would need to be able to access. And so, you know, I would certainly like to see, um, you know, Moderna and uh, BioNTech, along with Pfizer, BioNTech de- uh, developed what we think of as the Pfizer vaccine and then Pfizer licensed it and it's making it. Um, I'd like to see them commit or be forced if they weren't willing to commit uh, to share the, the technical know-how and then the US government to really provide leadership in investing and in converting manufacturing equipment and, and scaling up manufacturing uh, capabilities around the world, which depending on kind of what we're looking at, you know, costs, you know, two, like, 25 to $35 billion, which in the context of even the US um, kind of foreign aid budget, development budget, isn't a lot of money, it's certainly not a lot of money when we think about it in the context of um, the overall US budget, and it's certainly not a lot of money if we think about it in the context of the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that the world economy has already lost during COVID, um, not to mention the many trillions more that the IMF and others forecast we will continue to lose um, as long as the pandemic uh, rages and it very much is raging around the world. So I think um, it's very clear what um, I think President Biden should do. You know, I certainly think also coming off of the previous administration, um, there's nothing more that would signal kind of solidarity with the world and a real commitment um, to being a good kind of global uh, citizen, partner and leader. You know, than then doing this. But as of yet, it is not what the administration um, has committed to doing. Though, to be fair, it's not what kind of any other country is committed to do either. Right.
1: Right. And I'm given that backdrop, I mean, when you think about now your role as the vice chair of the Clinton Foundation, how are you seeing, because you guys have been doing so much work, working with low and middle income countries, for example, with Chai and, you know, different contexts, similar issues, supply side, making drugs affordable, access, you know, demand side and, and country capacity to get the drugs out and build build um, sustainability. Like, how do you see now with the COVID-19 pandemic, the role of the foundation? How are you guys thinking about, about some of your priorities in the current state of play?
0: Well, certainly, um, you know, we across like every aspect of, you know, the foundation and TRY have tried to um, be as as supportive as we possibly can be to what our partner governments um, have prioritized You know, throughout the um, pandemic uh, to work with uh, WHO in kind of a myriad of ways that uh, we've been very privileged to be asked to work with WHO. I think, though, in some ways, the most direct answer to your question um, is around our work with medical-grade oxygen. So we, prior to the pandemic, had really been focused on trying to Um, help uh, expand um, the world's ability to provide oxygen to kind of any situation that would need it. I mean, this isn't something that we really think about here in the United States because, you know, if you, you know, if you're like playing in a high school football game and like you need oxygen, like there's often like oxygen right there, like at your high school football game or, you know, you have to go to a local clinic or certainly of course, if you're in a hospital, um, We don't ever really worry about running out of oxygen. And yet in so much of the world, there just isn't access to oxygen at all. Even though we know with access to basic oxygen, um, truly hundreds of thousands of lives could be saved every year, especially, you know, newborns, children, um, pregnant and postpartum women, anyone, you know, who would have pneumonia. And yet... We couldn't get a lot of attention to this work before COVID. In some countries, um, we're very much there was strong country leadership. We were able to kind of do what Chai very much um, I think historically has done very well of like bring different partners around the table from you know the manufacturing side, the distribution side, the government side, the private sector side, donor side, um, and and begin to architect a plan and then begin to kind of execute against that plan to expand um, kind of you know production and and distribution and thankfully, productive use of of oxygen. Um, but that work, you know, had had really just just begun, and then, you know, covid hit. And now, all of a sudden, there were so many more people who were so attentive as to why, you know, medical oxygen—you know, has to be thought of as an essential right. commodity um, and resource. You know, anywhere and everywhere, um, whether you're in a pandemic or not. Although, arguably, especially true in a pandemic. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that is a place we're really trying to focus now to ensure that the equity conversations around vaccines, you know, are an opportunity to have broader health equity and health systems conversations. Um, including around uh, oxygen, hopefully for, for everywhere.
1: Right. Thank you for sharing that. I, that's definitely a topic that I don't think a lot of people are are familiar with. So I'm glad to hear about that work. Um, you've also been involved in supporting entrepreneurs um, and particularly women founders that are launching um, exciting new ventures. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the investment fund you recently recently launched if I'm saying this correctly, Metrodora Ventures and kind of the yes. type of entrepreneurs you're you're backing?
0: Yeah. Well, KP, thank you so much for, you know, talking um, with Simone, you know, for so long, you know, for years now, I've just heard this, like, you know, this narrative that you know, we weren't investing enough in women. You know, we weren't investing enough in, in women in the private sector and the venture space. We weren't investing enough in women social entrepreneurs. We weren't investing enough in women, you know, running for office. And then, you know, there were all of these um, stories then a couple of years ago about, oh my gosh, like we made so much progress. Like, look at all these women running for Congress. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, women are still like only a quarter of the candidates running for Congress. They're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, so many more like women, like startups got funded and I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, it went from like, you know, 2% of venture dollars to 4% of venture dollars. Right. You could actually think like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that was a 100% increase. Or you can think it's still only 4%.
1: Only 4%, right. right? Or like, <laughs>
0: oh my gosh, look, like, this woman became the head of this organization. And I would think, oh my gosh, like if we look at, like, who are the CEOs, like COOs, like chairs and vice chairs of all these big nonprofit organizations, it's still like 10% women. So I just, you know, kept kept feeling like there was this rhetoric about the challenges and then there was this rhetoric about, oh my gosh, we've made all this progress. And somehow then that got taken as success, even though it just said to me like, oh, wow, yeah, we've made real progress, but we are still like super far from like parity and equal opportunity and equal investment and equal support and equal championship and mentorship and networking and like everything we know that you have to have to be successful, whether you're in... You know the private sector, or the not-for-profit sector, or the public sector, and so you know, with a friend, we launched, you know, Metro Tour Ventures to invest in early-stage, you know, health and learning companies. Um, and while we have invested in a few uh, men, we've overwhelmingly invested in, um, in in women solving challenges that you know, they and their loved ones often have experienced around um, the ways in which, like, we have failed. Um, you know, Black women students. The ways in which we have failed, you know, Black women uh, who are pregnant in our country. Um, and I think it's really important that we invest in the people who have been affected by challenges uh, to then have the real um, kind of dollars and support needed to then help solve those challenges for themselves and others.
1: That's great. And, and for my listeners, um, Simone Tate, uh, the founder and CEO of Poppy Seed Health, is who Chelsea's referring to. And that's a company she's invested in. And we had a great conversation about that work. So I'll put that episode back in the references. But um, um, she's a wonderful entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I clearly think the world of her. Um, and you know, I just think um, yes, like Poppy Seed is is so illustrative of you know, the ways in which I hope to make a small difference in helping support, you know, people challenging um, kind of the, the status quo through tackling very real challenges, you know, that they haven't just been kind of, you know, observers of, but very much have experienced, you know, in their lives and in their communities, um, because I don't think that empathy um, should be like a nice to have when we're thinking about who we're investing in um whether we're talking about kind of public health research and i was really happy to see stat news um you know effectively like call out with a whole lot of evidence the ways in which health equity back to the beginning yeah, of our exactly. conversation has now become this like gold rush for largely you know white researchers who don't have the necessary training skills, experiences needed to be able to really understand what are the important questions to ask, really be able to marshal the right set of tools to um, then pursue kind of building an evidence base around those questions, really then be able to um, be the right people to then analyze the data that emerge. Be the right people then to write about that data, communicate that data, try to offer real policy suggestions out of kind of those analyses. And so, you know, I just think um, we can't think of like empathy and equity um, as as being like nice to haves or kind of only that, you know, some people should worry about. I think we have to think about them as necessary, but we also have to think about like who we should be listening to, learning from and following who are really doing the work to help us understand both where we are not, um, but where we kind of could, and in a normative sense should be, and then how we get from from here to there?
1: No, no, a hundred percent. It's like you were reading my mind on my final question. I ask every guest this question, and you've already touched on so many of these themes, but it really hits to the heart of what we're trying to do with this podcast with leaders such as yourself. So why are you, Chelsea, in on health equity? If you can kind of summarize for us that theme.
0: Oh, gosh. I think really the question you should be asking is like, why isn't someone in on health equity? Like, how could anyone think that um, we are not kind of all all connected, especially after the just cascade of tragedies and kind of tragic, you know, moral, political, and candidly also public health failures of the last 18 months, which were arguably the invariable um, consequences of the tragic failures to, you know, underinvest and to often have disinvested, you know, in in public health and public health research, but also in actively trying to um, ameliorate all of the um, especially racial, though also um, kind of gender and many other inequities that have long existed uh, in our country, uh, including um, as relates to health. So, you know, I I think the default KP should be that, like, well, everyone should care. And I think instead we should be asking people who don't think it's vital to each of us um, and to our shared future, like why they don't.
1: I, I, I must say that's a very convincing case. And I, I frankly agree. I think that um, health equity, particularly how you framed it and how many of my guests have framed it, is, becomes a, a theme that really should be what healthcare is about in its essence. Um, so Chelsea, as always, I really appreciate um, your time and your thoughtful um commentary on some some pretty challenging topics here that are they really um they really force us to think hard about where we are and where we want to be and I always appreciate your insights and, and also your your heart.
0: Oh well thank you KP and thank you for you know shining a light on you know everything that is not only unfair but um, solvable and the challenges of inertia and then not solving all the things that are so deeply unfair um and and lead to all of us being less uh less healthy than we should uh, than we should be and that anyone and everyone deserves to be so thank you for um thank you for having me
1: thank you for joining us for the in on health podcast for more information on this guest and other episodes please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.